Hello, and welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Uh, we meet today, you and I, on a, on a, 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 at a sober moment in the history of our nation. That's true. And uh, this is not a day for, for a lot of repartee, I would say. Um, of course, we're talking about the aftermath of the disaster in Uvalde, Texas, um, that occurred last week um, after our last episode aired. And, of course, we had talked to you about the fact that we were going to get into independent state legislature theory, ISL theory, and that that's a very important issue for the country, and so it is. Um, but at the same time, we're sensitive to the fact that this this tragedy is on everyone's mind. And part of, part of the reason we're sensitive to it is that we received quite a bit of email this week from our listeners asking about this. Are you going to cover this? What you know? What do you? What about this? What about that? So it's it's clearly on the minds of of America as it is on on our minds, and so we respect that, and we're going to address that today. And we will return to ISL, of course, which could determine actually who wins the election, uh, the presidential election of 2024. We, in fact, have already recorded the first of um, at least two ISL episodes. Um, It's in the vault. Um, We'll come back to that um, uh, after we talk about uh, guns and the Constitution. And the nature of of Professor Amara's scholarship is such that, you know, he's an originalist, and so he's looking back, he's looking at the Constitution and looking at different parts of the Constitution and issues that are central to constitutional law are things that he has already thought about in many cases. And so it's not surprising that even though this is an issue of the moment, that the scholarship on this largely already exists. And in fact, we've already done two episodes on it. Our episodes uh, 45 and 46, which were called uh, Putting Ahead to Our Gun, and to Heller and back. Now, of course, these are somewhat whimsical titles uh, in the moment. It doesn't may feel inappropriate now, but those were the titles. Um, and that was, remember, back in November, I think November 10th and November 17th of last year. And the reason that we talked about it then was because the Supreme Court held oral arguments on a gun control case, New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin, which they have yet to decide. Um, but... You know, following the oral argument, we, we decided to talk about it. And in the um, tradition of our podcast, uh, we gave you a framework for thinking about rights first, because after all, we're talking about Second Amendment and, in this case, 14th Amendment rights. Um, and so the first episode, Putting Ahead to Our Gun, actually gave a framework for talking about rights in general. And it's not surprising, I think, if you go back and listen to these episodes, which we recommend that you do, that you'll actually find a lot of echoes in our recent episodes on the Dobbs case, which also dealt with unenumerated rights. It's not surprising that a framework for talking about rights would apply to both of these cases. At any rate, the first episode gave a general framework for talking about rights uh, with the Second Amendment in mind. And then the second episode dealt more specifically with the New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin case. And, and Andy, since you mentioned Dobbs, um, and since you mentioned very kindly that I consider myself an expert, and I'm not the only expert. In fact, next week we're going to have someone who's really an extraordinary expert that Andy's going to tell you about. 
Um, but um, to Heller and back was a pun on a case called Heller, um, um, which was the first major um, Second Amendment case in the modern era. It was a Scalia opinion, and most folks think, oh, that's the key opinion. I don't. Um, I think the most important opinion is actually a companion, a later case, excuse me, called City of Chicago versus McDonald. And the author of the opinion of the court in that case was Sam Alito. And, and that's more important because most gun control legislation in the modern era has actually been state and local legislation. It's possible Congress is going to do something. <laughs> Don't hold your breath, but it's at least possible. But states, in fact, in the modern era have done things um, on both sides of the gun issue, um, pro-gun and, and gun control uh, legislation. And City of Chicago versus McDonald was about state and local regulations, rights against um, states and localities, 14th Amendment rights. And that's, in my view, the more important case. And, and who authored it? Sam Alito. And um, actually, um, my own scholarship was cited nine times um, in that case, uh, scholarship on um, gun issues. And it's the same Sam Alito, in fact, offering a, pretty much a same um, originalist analysis in the Leach-Dobbs draft. So there, there are all sorts of interesting connections between, I would say, the landmark gun case, which is um, City of Chicago versus McDonald, um, and Sam Alito, and the Dobbs draft, and Akhil Amar's ideas about all, all of this, both in Dobbs, where um, I'm cited in the draft, and in City of Chicago versus McDonald, where I'm, I'm cited multiple times, and not just by Justice Alito, but by, by other justices as well. So this is a podcast in which we actually claim expertise. We want to be the smartest podcast out there on constitutional law. And, and so it, it's not just for kind of uh, yucking it up and clever repartee. It's about serious analysis. And so Andy's right. We're going we're gonna to re- revisit these previous episodes. We're going to play you some clips. Um, but if you want even more, go back and listen to the original episodes. We think they, they stand up well, even after the intervening months. They, they, they've aged well. Right. And the, so as Akil mentioned, we're going to play you some clips now from our own episodes. And the reason we're going to do that is, you know, to listen to the two episodes, which I recommend you do if you haven't done yet. But that's three hours and we recognize that not everyone, you know, will put that, that time in uh, or, or even if they want to. Um, and so we're going to try to introduce you to the themes of those episodes. But this is not really meant to be entirely a substitute for it. You know, the, you'll notice that some of the issues we just introduced, we, we're a little sketchy here. And if you want more, I promise you it's there um, in those two episodes. Again, episodes 45 and 46, um, which should be very easy to find on the various ways that you access this podcast in the first place. Okay, just to summarize the way that we're going to address the gun questions now, today we're going to review those episodes so that you have your framework for how to think about rights in general and how you have a a framework for thinking about the Second Amendment and the 14th Amendment and the constitutional landscape of guns. Then next week, we're going to have a true expert, not that we have a false expert this week, but an additional true expert, Adam Winkler, professor at UCLA School of Law, who's the author of the really excellent book, Gunfight, Um, And we're going to talk to him about, just like we did with the Dobbs case, after we reviewed all of the uh, 
the constitutional landscape was said, okay, does this really have to be the decision, the Dobbs case? Does this, does this opinion have to be the opinion? And what might be done uh, other than what everybody expects, which is just that this is going to be the opinion? Similarly here, we're going to talk about, okay, now that we've laid out, we will have laid out the constitutional landscape for you, what might Congress be able to do? Um, and what should they do? Uh, and what shouldn't they do? What would be productive and what wouldn't be productive? And just as in Dobbs, we talked about the possibility, just uh, uh, conceptually, of an approach that might span the ideological um, range, uh, an approach that might get, let's say, Kavanaugh at one end and Sotomayor at the other, um, a, a kind of consensus alternative uniting liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats. In our next episode, we're going to talk about the conceptual possibility of Congress passing law that liberals and conservatives, Republicans and Democrats could unite around. Um, uh, something that John Cornyn and, and Mitch McConnell on the Republican side could agree to, along with Chris Murphy on the, on the Democratic side. You know, what the sweet spot of a gun deal might actually look like and, and why. Um, who knows if it, it can happen, but we're trying to just offer at least the conceptual possibility and sketch out um, for, for, for you um, um, what would the parameters of such an approach uh, look like. You know, and frankly, you know, we've, we've invested a lot of work in this podcast over the year and a half that we've been doing it. And we've been gratified to see that not only have larger, far larger numbers of, of people listen to it, but also um, people of importance, people of, of, of influence. So we, we know for a fact that uh, clerks of the Supreme Court have listened, that important federal judges have listened, that congressional staffers listen, um, and also that members of Congress have listened as well. So we're hoping that perhaps, you know, hoping against hope that perhaps we can actually uh, help influence the discussion. And one of our audience members, apparently we just found this out um, uh, yesterday or day before, is going to be our, our guest next week. We reached out to him because, in my view, he's a man. He's one of the two or three, if not the, um, um, most uh, uh, knowledgeable and um, best respected legal scholars on the gun issue. Um, his name is Adam Winkler, as you heard. He's a professor at UCLA, distinguished Harvard Law graduate, and he wrote the book, He's a Man. This book, Gunfight, um, which we'll tell you more about next week, um, is a very fair treatment of both sides of the debate, reflecting tons of um, uh, research interviews with the major uh, political actor and legal actors today, the lawyers on, on, on different sides of these important cases like Heller that we've been telling you about. And it's also a serious constitutional analysis by a serious legal scholar. So with Dobbs, we brought you Linda Greenhouse and, and Ed Whelan. They have very different views on reproductive rights in America, but we thought, you know, they're the, you know, among the, the leading commentators. And with, with uh, Adam Winkler, we'll, we have kind of one-stop shopping. He's going to um, fairly give you both sides of the debate. 
And I think what you what you started to say but didn't finish saying is that he's a listener to the podcast. We found out. Oh, we yes, yes. Him. That's what that's what we found out. So <laughs> yes. so um, we had no idea that we had, you know, such um, august, serious um, uh, folks. We, we knew the numbers, um, but we, we, we knew how many. But um, we're only now finding out who who some of them are. Um, we mentioned in our last episode um, the uh, eminent scholarship Lupu. Um, uh, and and apparently now Andy um, he's binge listening um, all the past episodes. Uh, so um, and and audience members, you can too. Okay, so let's get to it. So I'm I'm going to start off here with a clip from the putting putting head to our gun uh, episode, and this first one just kind of outlines how to think about the Bill of Rights and incorporation. Now that we go into that in great depth, but this is this is how how we started off. In, in a nutshell, um, this right to keep and bear arms meant one thing, on my view, at the founding um, in 1790s with the Bill of Rights, something quite different, actually, um, after the Civil War at the time of the um, uh, 14th Amendment, and might mean something different yet again today. If so, it's a very interesting case study in constitutional method. And I think that... Uh... You know, you, you consider yourself an originalist, and I think that people uh, associate that with the notion that things are fixed in some way in time, um, whether it's, you know, at the time of the original Constitution or at the time of the drafting of, and passage of various amendments, that things get fixed at those times. And now you're talking here about these various times, various time posts that are significant. Um, and how do, you, how do you reconcile those two positions? That's what makes this such an interesting case study, you see. Before I came along, uh, the, one of the biggest issues of American constitutional law was the question of um, uh, whether the 14th Amendment, adopted after the Civil War, incorporated the Bill of Rights Against the States. That's how people talked about it. It's called the incorporation debate. Um, and many people thought it's probably the single biggest issue of American constitutional law in the mid-20th century. Why don't explain and, to our audience what, it, what that would mean for those that don't understand the concept of incorporation? That this origi- The question is whether um, the uh, rights enumerated in Amendments 1 through 10 freedom of speech, freedom of the press, free exercise of religion, um, the right to keep and bear arms, the right against uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, um, uh, the right against double jeopardy, the right to compulsory um, of a, a criminal defendant to compel the production of witnesses in his favor, to have a speedy and public trial, to have a, a, a local jury trial, the, the right to, to, to be free from um, uh, excessive bail um, or uh, cruel and unusual punishments whether that constellation of rights um, enumerated along with others in Amendments 1 through 8, especially the, 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 uh, the early amendments of the Bill of Rights, whether that set of rights, which originally protected people only against the federal government, should also be interpreted to apply against states and localities, whether these rights should be incorporated against states and localities by dint of the 14th Amendment. So that was the debate. And after the 14th Amendment was adopted, and um, for the first half century, courts did not 
in general, apply the Bill of Rights, incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states, but led by, and there were dissenters, the great John Marshall Harlan dissented, uh, the, John Marshall Harlan the Elder, who also dissented famously in Plessy versus Ferguson. He said, actually, the 14th Amendment was designed to apply the Bill of Rights, to incorporate the Bill of Rights against states and localities. Um, I think he was basically right. Um, a heroic justice in the middle of the 20th century took um, up the cause uh, afresh, Hugo Lafayette Black, um, and initially was in dissent, but eventually in the Warren Court prevailed. And um, in uh, the, the, the Warren Court era, most of the clauses of the Bill of Rights came to be applied against the states, incorporated against the states, but not all of them had. Their Second Amendment, for example, had not in um, the middle of the, tw- of the 20th century. There hadn't been a, a Second Amendment case really um, against the federal government that made clear that there was an individual right to have a gun and, and, um, outside the confines of an organized um, militia. So there wasn't a lot of Second Amendment case law about um, uh, individual rights outside a militia context um, against the federal government, and there surely was no then incorporation of, of that right, whatever its contours, against the states um, uh, when I started writing these articles in, in 1991 and, and then the book. So, so, um, so there's a reason why con law courses didn't talk very much about the Second Amendment or incorporation because there weren't very many cases, and most constitutional law courses are all about the cases. Um, and the Supreme Court had not um, um, basically told us what it thought the Second Amendment meant um, and definitely hadn't um, ruled on whether th- that right, whatever its contours, applied against states and localities. Let me say it one final way about your question, which is incorporation. Most of our audience who haven't thought about the matter might be surprised to realize that almost everything that they think is, quote, a Bill of Rights case, unquote, is not a Bill of Rights case. Almost, a- almost all the landmark cases that ordinary people think of as involving the Bill of Rights technically involve the 14th Amendment because they technically involve states or localities, not the federal government. I'll name some of the cases. So New York Times versus Sullivan is a famous free speech, free press case, but it's against Alabama. Um, And Griswold versus Connecticut, a a right of privacy in your home case, oh, that's against Connecticut. Lawrence, uh, gay rights cases, Lawrence versus Texas. Um, Or Obergefell, that's actually, uh, again, about um, a a state. Um, Miranda versus Arizona, Map v. Ohio, Escobedo versus Illinois, um, Gideon versus Wainwright is about um, Florida and how it has to provide um, appointed counsel to indigent defendants. To repeat, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education, um, that's that's Topeka, Kansas. Uh, Tinker versus Des Moines is a right about student um, expression um, in Des Moines, Iowa. Almost all the, the landmark, quote, Bill of Rights unquote, cases that come to uh, the mind of, uh, of someone in our audience are technically not Bill of Rights cases, um, uh, but um, actually 14th Amendment incorporation cases. Okay, so that's 
kind of a, an introduction to the introduction, you know, about how to think <laughs> about the Bill of Rights and uh, and incorporation, how the how the bill how rights extend beyond the Bill of Rights for in many in many cases. And today, we're focusing in part on whether Congress can get its act together and pass national legislation, but. Many states, like Texas today, are also going to need to be thinking about their gun laws. And um, if they do pass any gun laws, those are going to be measured by the 14th Amendment. That's why incorporation is going to be really important. And then the major gun case that the Supreme Court will be handing down this term, a case argued in November, which is why we did those two episodes, just to remind everyone, that's a case about New York gun control legislation, which I predicted um, and continue to predict um, that um, New York law will be um, invalidated by a court majority. Um, and uh, we're, we're, we'll talk about that also with, with Adam Winkler n- next week as well. Um, but um, the you have to focus, audience members, not just on what's happening in Washington, D.C., but what's happening in your state capital. Right. Okay. Now, the next clip, which is much briefer, um, just introduces how the Second Amendment fits into this framework a little bit. But the Second Amendment was my great case study because maybe at the founding, there was both an original um, that was both an individual rights component, maybe to have a gun in your home for self-protection or to carry it um, 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 in various private ways, alongside something that was closer to a state right, the right of a state to have an organized militia um, um, able, capable of defending against um, a, a lawless federal military incursions or something. So if the original Second Amendment had a state's rights component to it, as well as an individual rights component, Maybe only the individual rights component sensibly applies against states later on, the 1860s. Um, oh, so now incorporation is going to be a little bit more complicated. Okay. So that just intru- puts, puts where the Second Amendment fits into this framework a little bit, which is to say in a complicated way. And my, my bigger point is if you're a serious originalist, you have to think about what rights meant at the founding um, 1780s, 1790s, but you also have to think about what rights meant, how they were understood after the Civil War, when this landmark uh, amendment was passed, a new birth of freedom, um, um, reconceptualizing federalism in America, in America and rights in America. And in fact, you also have to think about the current moment as well, because as we're going to hear, I think, in, in some additional clips, um, there are unenumerated rights. Um, they weren't all list, um, even um, understood and recognized at the founding or at the time of the, the 14th Amendment. That's what we talked about, actually, in our um, discussion of Dobbs. Um, we talked about the founding. We talked about Reconstruction. But we also talked about um, reproductive rights um, today. And, um, and that's a framework for, for reproductive rights. It's also a framework for gun rights and all sorts of other rights. Okay, so we've introduced the concept of incorporation. We talked a, briefly about how the Second Amendment fits into it. Next, um, you go a little bit more into refining this idea of incorporation and, and how it's there can be different types of incorporation, and how does that apply to the case at hand? Here's here's a little bit on, on that. The case at hand being um, the New York case that was argued in November and um, whose decision uh, we're going to get um, in the next three or four weeks. Right, and we are going to get into that um, in the second 
uh, part of this, uh, of these past podcasts that we're reviewing right now. Um, here, we're still talking about it at, at the higher level of the Second Amendment in general and incorporation in general. But, but Black and the Warren Court dramatically expanded. Black's theory was total incorporation. The court instead did a thing called selective incorporation, in which they basically decided the issue um, retail, not wholesale, right by right, clause by clause, they decided, is this fundamental? If it is, we'll apply it against the states. Um, um, and somehow, though, they didn't, they, they, they weren't willing to say, oh, civil juries are fundamental, grand juries are fundamental. So that's, that's a, a, and they never really talked about the Second Amendment or the Third Amendment. So that was a thing called selective incorporation. Along comes Amar and says, here's the way to think about it. Not mechanical incorporation, just a word processing change. Delete federal and replace with state or federal, but everything else stays the same. It can't quite, because how do you apply states' rights against states quite? Um, That's a little weird. Selective incorporation, clause by clause. Okay, yes, look at it more in a more fine-grained way, retail rather than wholesale, but but technically, you're not incorporating clauses. You're identifying privileges and immunities of citizens. And in the course of, you're filtering them in some ways. You're looking at a Second Amendment and you're saying, well, the, the states' rights stuff doesn't make sense to apply against the states, but there's an individual rights component, you know, and, and that actually can pass through the membrane, through the filter, you know, like um, 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 uh um, osmosis and diffusion, you know, through a membrane. So a refined incorporation is the idea. This is the idea that I coined. Um, and it's, and it's been very well received and, and widely respected that in, in the course of applying a right, incorporating it against states, you actually have to think about how that right was understood in the 1860s the 1860s and not the 1790s. And it might very well be that certain aspects of the right get changed in the process of being incorporated against states. So originalism is a little more complicated. They need to understand the founding vision, but also the reconstruction vision, which is why the book, the 1998 book, is entitled The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. It has two parts. It has a bunch of chapters, but two main parts. Part one, creation, Part two, Reconstruction. If you are Christian, the analogy would be Old Testament, New Testament. Christians, in fact, read um, what they call, what we call the Old Testament, through the prism of the New Testament. We read the book of Isaiah as if it says a virgin shall give birth rather than a young woman shall give birth. Um, We construe the personality of God not merely as um, Yahweh, um, uh, uh, um, who's actually a bit of a terrifying uh, personality, in, in fact. Um, but um, we read the Old Testament through the prism of the teachings of this uh, um, reformist rabbi um, uh, uh, from Nazareth, um, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, who says, oh, no, the personality of God is God as Abba, Father. So if you're a Christian, you're actually reading older texts through the prism of later texts. And I say, actually, originalism done right has to understand not just the founding vision, but the reconstruction vision, which might be different and is later in time. Oh, and there's one final complication, Andy. Maybe some of these fundamental rights, these privileges and immunities of citizens that no state shall abridge, 
maybe actually um, they didn't identify all of them in 1866. And if they didn't, if there are additional rights that are out there, and one way to find them is to actually ask, what do Americans think are their fundamental rights? Maybe that means we need to ask the question not just about 1791 and 1866, but what do Americans today think their fundamental rights are in um, 2021? And that's a third time period. And it's possible that a phrase like the right to keep and bear arms means one thing at the founding, a second thing in, in Reconstruction, and maybe a slightly different thing today. Okay. Well, if you're a listener of our podcast, that has to sound familiar to you. Um, in terms of what we've been talking about with with Dobbs and the Alito opinion uh, or draft opinion, where we talked about the idea that some people are saying that he's saying that a right has to be in existence at the time of the 14th Amendment's drafting in order to uh, prevail, and uh, not so. And um, uh, we're, we're going to continue in, in this vein, but you see what you've already heard thus far, audience, is a decisive answer to the kind of snarky point, we don't have militias anymore, so the Second Amendment's meaningless. Um, no, at most, that even if that were true, that would be a refutation of a, of a founding era argument, um, but you still have to take seriously the idea that um, a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection was central to the framers of the 14th Amendment and central to many Americans today as shown in state law after state law and state constitution after state constitution. And we're going to talk about that more, but we've just <clears throat> explained already why it's just not enough to, to look, read the words of the Second Amendment. Say, it says militia. We don't have that anymore. Um, so um, what are they talking about? And, you know, there really is not a lot of discourse about the 14th Amendment in you know, the, among the public. I think when, when people talk about gun rights and the Constitution, they— they think it ends with the Second Amendment. That that's and here's and, and here's what they don't even know: the National Rifle Association, that is the NRA, was founded after the Civil War by a group of ex-Union Army officers, um, and um, and it's it's morphed and gone through all sorts of um, changes over, over the years um, for good and and not so good. Um, I know next week, Adam. Winkler is going to be able to tell us a lot about that because he has talked to all the, the major players on the gun enthusiast side and on the gun control side. Okay, so we're almost ready to move on to our uh, Second Amendment and Bruin issue uh, and Bruin um, episode. Uh, but here's one last... Bru Bruin's that New York case right. um, uh, that right. the Supreme Court um, is going to be handing down in the next uh, several weeks. Right, New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin, right. And um, so, But here's just a last little additional point um, about thinking, the way to think about the amendment. Yet, there's yet another thing about the Second Amendment that makes it just theoretically interesting, um, which is... Uh, um, Technology has changed very dramatically. Guns are a lot more lethal today uh, than they were at the founding. How, do, how does that factor into the analysis, if at all? So there are big changes of legal and social structure. In the founding era, um, uh, people did muster regularly um, for militia practice, at least in some places. Um, and they were trained in the use of arms. Um, and that and, and today there still is jury duty, although most people shirk it, but there isn't militia duty anymore. 
And, of course, you hear all the time people say, oh, this was drafted in, you know, the late 18th century. You know, how can it have anything to do with where we are today? The world has changed. And true enough. But the point, point is here is that there is room for that uh, in your analysis. Especially when we talk about um, modern understandings of, of, of rights, even if there weren't a Second Amendment at all. There is this idea that there are unenumerated rights. We took them seriously when we talked about Dobbs. Unenumerated rights to contraception, to sexual privacy. And if, if that's true in that domain, these are rights that liberals believe in. What about uh, unenumerated rights that conservatives believe in? Um, again, imagine there isn't a Second Amendment at all, but, but lots of people think it's fundamental to America that they have a gun in their home for self-protection, or at least a right to have one. But uh, now, as we're about to move on, just uh, just to say, there's a difference, though, in terms of whether the right is enumerated and unenumerated, right? In other words, if it's mm-hmm. if it's unenumerated, it's more amenable to uh, being altered in its and being inflowing, right? Yes, and 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 as you're going to hear, a Mars method is not actually for, for him to tell you what he thinks um, personally or to invite judges to tell you what they think personally, who cares, um, or to look at polls, which I think are very um, uh, unreliable, um, and that's not how we actually um, uh, do law in America. Amar's way is going to be to, if you're trying to figure out what, what Americans themselves think about contraception, about sexual privacy, about abortion, um, about uh, guns in the home, about guns outside the home, um, above and beyond what the Constitution text already says, um, look at state laws. Count them up. Look at state constitutions. Count them up. Um, adjust by population, I'm, um, Omar is going to argue. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but we're going to hear some clips on just that. Although I will say that in terms of these clips, we because we talked so much about counting, uh, over the last couple of weeks, that we don't have uh, that I, we actually left out a lot of our discussion about counting that took place in in these episodes. And if you want to hear more about it, then again, I would suggest that you listen to the entirety of the episodes where we get more into questions of state counting. We do mention it here, but it's not a focus because we again, people we're assuming this is not necessarily your first episode of of listening to our podcast you may have been listening recently and we have talked quite a lot about counting in recent weeks so now we're going to talk next week about counting as well um because actually one particular uh, reform item on the agenda red flag laws um which we'll describe more next week raise particularly subtle issues of how counting is best done and by counting just you know briefly of course we're talking about counting how many states actually have passed laws or how many state constitutions contain a particular uh, expression of a, of a right. Um, and then also there are subtleties on that, like, well, big states, so they count more than small states and so forth. Right. I, I think we should adjust by population. That's a, an, 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 and when it comes to red flag laws, that's actually going to be a particularly important issue. Right. And the, there's a lot a lot of uh, nuance there. Okay, so now we're we're going to actually get into the uh, New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin case, and we're going and we're also going to get into the meat of the Second Amendment. Now, although you can be critical of people that only look at the text and don't look at the history, structure, context, 
and so forth, that doesn't mean that in Professor Amara's analysis that you ignore the text. And he's actually starting off here with, uh, with, a, with a, an approach to the text of the Second Amendment. So let's hear a little about that. And now that we have this overall framework, as I said, looking at rights from 40,000 feet, we're going to try to apply it to a specific case, namely the New York State uh, Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. This case was argued before the Supreme Court on November 3rd, and of course you know, has yet to be decided. Um, in order to do this, though, we can't just dump our plane on the ground um, from 40,000 feet. Well, first, we've got to uh, look at the actual parts of the Constitution involved, and in this case, that's principally the Second and Fourteenth Amendments, and then we can look at the case itself. So um, I guess it makes sense to start with the Second Amendment. And to start with the text. Uh, amendment 2. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, now, um, let's take a look at, at the words and the syntax of that sentence, um, and let's understand its historical context as well. So we're, we're doing originalism of a certain sort, just to remind our audience, um, <clears throat> this is the second amendment to the Constitution. Um, it's proposed in 1789, actually initially uh, by the first Congress. Initially, it's actually fourth on the list of congressional proposed amendments, but the first two don't get ratified. So it's ratified as the second amendment um, in 1791. It's coming out of the founding era. The first amendment, of course, very famously is about um, speech, freedom of speech and the freedom of the press, free exercise, petition, assembly, um, the establishment clause. So now we have the second amendment. Um, if you look at it today, you might think there are a couple too many commas in it, and, and you, you might be right. They, they, they punctuated things a little differently uh, back then. So um, I think of it as really having two main clauses, the kind of the why clause and the what clause. And it begins with why. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, and then the what. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, law, we're lucky here because law almost never tells us why. It just says do it, you know. Um, there are a few places in the Constitution where um, actually we are told why. The preamble of the Constitution very famously says, we the people of the United States, but, you know, what, what's the, 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 the key takeaway point? We do ordain and establish this Constitution. We're doing something. We're voting on it an epic democratic deed, but it also actually um, in passing tells us why we're doing it. Um, so the preamble of the constitution um, um, says um, we, the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of Liberty to ourselves and our posterity do ordain and establish. So it tells us why. Um, there are a couple of provisions um, in uh, uh, the main text of the Constitution that are um, why clauses. Again, law often doesn't um, do this, but um, Article 1 is the longest article. It's about the powers of Congress. The longest section of that um, is actually, it's about Congress generally, Article 1. The longest section in the longest article is Section 8, and it begins um, with a really important power. Um, taxing. 
The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. Not one, not two, not three, four different ways of actually reaching into your and my pockets with taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. But then it tells us why. To pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. So, and an echo of that preamble, that common defense general welfare um, language. Now, let's take a, take a look at one more clause of Article 1, Section 8. Uh, I, I told you about Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, um, and the purpose um, to pay the debts, provide for the common defense and general welfare, the, the preamble language. About nine paragraphs later or so, um, maybe eight, um, here's another clause that tells us the purpose. Congress shall have power, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, unquote. So Congress is going to have power to pass copyright laws, uh, which every author loves, <laughs> um, and patent laws, um, and trademark laws. But, it's gonna, but we know why Congress um, uh, should be passing these sorts of laws. They should uh, pass these laws, quote, to promote the progress of science and useful arts. So there the, the text is telling us not just what, but why. Now flash forward, and that's in the main body of the Constitution. That's in Article 1, and we talked about the preamble. Not very many other purposive clauses that I can identify in the Constitution, but, but the next big one is going to be the Second Amendment. So can you comment on, on the significance of these clauses? In other words, do they limit the, the behavior of the clauses that we can only interpret it uh, to be active in terms of those purposes? I think that would go too far to say they're the only purposes. And indeed, the Constitution, interestingly, only uses the word only once. Um, actually, it says treason against the United States shall consist only of levying war um, against the United States or giving aid and comfort to their enemies. Um, and that's in part because it wants to limit the ability of the federal government to call all sorts of other things um, treason, mere disagreeing with um, um, government officials, uh, incumbent um, uh, uh, um, officialdom. So, so um, the word only appears only in art, the Article 3 treason clause. A lot of times it's implicit. Ah, um, Article 1, Section 8 lists the powers of Congress, and presumably um, those are the only powers of Congress. Um, uh, there are about 18 things that are itemized, unless there, something is uh, mentioned elsewhere in the document, um, or as part of the spirit of the whole thing. But you wouldn't itemize 17 things, and then there was a, gl- a global 18th clause. Um, if there were plenary power, why try to itemize the 17 things? So um, really, they're, they're only certain powers of Congress. They're not infinite. Article 3 lists nine categories of cases and controversies that federal courts can hear. And presumably, if federal courts could hear any and all lawsuits between any and all litigants, it would have been silly to itemize nine. Um, so, um, so sometimes there is an implicit only that we read into the words of the Constitution, just as we often interpolate them in just in ordinary um, uh, language. Sometimes if I say to you A, B, and C, implicitly it's and nothing more, only A, B, and C, and other times um, not. And this is a nice interpretive question often. There's a legal maxim um, in Latin, 
It's called expressio unius est exclusio alteria. Sometimes it's called inclusio unius, which says the in- expression or the inclusion of, of one thing or some things implicitly prohibits everything else. So the question is, how should we think about that with a purpose of clause? Is this the only legitimate purpose? And I would say you, it's possible to read it that way, but that probably isn't the bet, necessarily always the best reading, um, especially when it comes to rights, because remember, there's a clause of the Constitution that says don't get too hung up on just the enumeration of rights. There may be unenumerated rights as well, the, the famous Ninth Amendment. So especially because of that, when it comes to rights, if a certain purpose is enumerated, I might be hesitant to say, well, it's clear that that's the only purpose for that right, and you can't go you know, one inch beyond that purpose. Okay, so there's a, a lot there. Um, you know, you do – it's a very interesting uh, discussion of, the, of, the, uh, of this clause – so I think the key point is that we should be especially hesitant to read rights in stingy ways. If there can be unenumerated rights altogether, maybe there can be unenumerated purposes for enumerated rights. At least I'm going to be very open to that possibility. So that's one thing that you heard in that clip. And the other thing that you heard in that clip is I'm going to try to be um, holistic and coherent. I'm going to think about... Um, the clause of the Second Amendment alongside, when I'm doing a textual analysis, other clauses in the Constitution that arguably have sort of similar purposive structures like the preamble and the copyright clause and the tax clause. I'm uh, going to tell you what I think about guns, uh, but I'm going to tell you what I think about guns in the context of a much broader framework about rights generally, um, uh, reproductive rights, gun rights, they're, they're subsets of rights, property rights, and constitutional interpretation more generally. Are we doing textualism and purposivism here in ways that are actually consistent with how we do it over there? Okay. Um, so now you've discussed the why clause, um, and then you go on to discuss the what clause. So now we're back in the in the text of the amendment. Okay. And so now we've established this this purpose clause. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Now, it's telling me at its core, it's about, in effect, civilian supremacy. Um, the idea is, um, what's the militia to be contrasted with? In effect, an army. We really, um, an army is more dangerous to a free state, and we're going to need to know why they thought that and, and, and place this purpose of clause in the context of the rest of the amendment and American history. So now let me just continue. Just well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So here's the the key idea. First of all, um, um, the word militia in the first clause has a counterpart in the second clause, and the counterpart is the people. Today, um, um, we may miss that, but at the founding, the militia, in effect, are the people, and the people are the militia. Um, so by militia, they don't mean some small group of paid semi-professional um, uh, soldiers like today's National Guard. That's not what, that, that's an organized militia. It's, it's not so different from an army if they're paid semi-professional um, um, the militia was basically, in effect, the people in arms, um, the political people. The original 
draft of this amendment actually at one point said a well-regulated militia comma composed of the body of the people comma being necessary to the security of a free state but there were just too many positives and too many commas so they, they pulled that out but that from a syntactical point of view this amendment would would almost and and we'll put the text up of course um on uh, on our uh, website so the people can just uh, look at it for, for themselves but it would almost have something akin to a dangling modifier um uh, unless militia equals people so what's the world that they're imagining that militia equals people the idea and note that it's it's not persons it's people the idea is that um um your military should be um which is going to need to defend the republic um should not become a threat to the republic your military should look like your um um your your polity um the people who are sovereigns um with legitimate power to 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 make um policies and laws should also in effect um control um the people who are um enforcing those laws in in the last instance the, the military you want the people to um uh be properly represented in the legislature in the executive in the judiciary and in the military so um now we're doing we're doing a certain analysis I call intratextualism. Let's take that keyword people because remember an earlier version of the second amendment said a well-regulated militia comma composed of the body of the people, okay? So so um where else do we see this word people? Well, I told you that the preamble, we the people do ordain and establish the constitution. That's the political people. That's that's voters in effect, okay? Um and then the the um one paragraph later at the beginning of article 1 of the constitution which is about the legislature article 1 section section 1 is a sentence so there's the preamble and there's one sentence saying congress is going to have all the legislative powers that are conferred in this document and the next sentence the house of representatives shall be composed of members chosen every second year by the people of the several states. So again, people are your voters. So the voters ordain and establish the constitution. We the people did ordain and establish this thing in an act of epic inclu- uh, democratic inclusion, inclusiveness. The the hinge of human history I've called it, the uh, the big bang. More people were allowed to participate in this than had ever been allowed to vote on anything significant in the history of the world, okay? So it begins we the people um and because that was a big deal and and the people are basically your political people the voters they ordain the constitution they pick the house of representatives every 2 years and the representatives are supposed to be representatives of the people um now the word people doesn't appear in articles 2 and 3 but um the people in effect um are are picking the president in a filtered way but they pick the the president um and they serve on grand juries um which is part of the executive branch and that's the people and in article 3 they serve on trial juries and and they're supposed to be representatives of the people and now you see it's the same people who are supposed to be your well regulated militia in fact militias are as we talked about earlier a lot like um juries they're basically the citizenry and you don't want your judiciary to just be dominated 
by unrepresentative um, uh, bureaucrats, judges, or dominated by um, uh, prosecutors um, who um, uh, are um, uh, uh, aloof from the citizenry. You don't want your representatives, your, your legislature, um, to um, just be um, uh, some uh, autocratic, oligarchical elite. Your legislature should come from the people, in some sense, or at least part of it, um, should be um, the people um, in, in uh, uh, Congress, the people um, in the executive branch, grand juries especially, the people in the judiciary, trial juries, and now the people in the military, as opposed to, See, an army isn't like that. It's not representative necessarily. It could be composed of, of, of convicts or of, of vagrants or of, of foreigners, mercenaries, paid Hessians. So this amendment is saying we want our military to look like us, just like we want our legis- the, the constitutional conventions that ratify the Constitution to look like us, the legislature to look like us, um, grand juries and trial juries to look like us is fundamentally about representative government. It, it, the concern is about civilian supremacy over the military, because even if you had a perfectly ordained constitution preamble and a really well governing and well running representative Congress and executive branch and judicial branch, if the army has a mind of its own, a will of its own, if it's a power within a power to use a, a famous phrase at the time, if it's imperium in imperio, a kind of kingdom within a kingdom, that's going to be a threat to the republic, which in, in a Second Amendment is what, what's about the security of a free state. And state there doesn't mean New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania. It means a free regime, a free republic. So that's a, that's a detailed look at the text of the amendment. And the founding vision, and again, I'm always trying to show you how one part of the Constitution fits with other parts and creates a, a larger holistic pattern of meaning. Now we're about to get into the uh, case, the New York State Rifle Association versus Bruin case uh, in, our, in this podcast that, that we're reviewing. Um, and we just, uh, before we can do that, we have to just point out um, that it's about the case, Bruin case is about more than guns in the home. So we just address that very briefly. Um, if we only have the Second Amendment, is there a right to carry a gun, uh, uh, to keep a gun in your home? Yeah, uh, they ca- had guns in their homes in Lexington and Concord. How about to carry, to, to, to bear arms um, uh, uh, on the town square for a regular militia muster? Sure. Um, but what about just carrying guns um, in other contexts to, um, uh, for hunting purposes, you know, for um, a target shooting, for recreation? Um, uh, maybe, but it's a bit of a, it's a bit more of a stretch because it's not at, it, now it's not as tightly connected to regular militia muster. You can say, no, hunting practice is going to make you a better soldier. Um, and target practice is going to be useful for all these purposes. Um, but um, you see, it's, it's at the periphery of the original Second Amendment vision. In fact, though, we've only t- done a third of the analysis because we're going to have to look at the Civil War experience and the 14th Amendment. We're also going to have to look at gun rights today and, and broader concepts of unenumerated rights. If you want to go through that, again, I, I recommend that you listen to the po- original podcast where we do go into uh, an analysis of the uh, 14th Amendment period where there was uh, an acknowledged right that kind of 
I summarize it when I talk to you by saying it was a right of a black man to keep a gun in his home to protect himself from the Klan. Um, uh, and, that, and that's showcased in a very short piece that the eminent journalist Ezra Klein did. Um, he and I spoke minutes after the Newtown tragedy. We had scheduled a conversation um, long in advance. Um, uh, we were supposed to talk about filibuster reform another one of my um, special interests. But um, just as now we're talking about guns rather than ISL theory, um, uh, and today Ezra Klein and I, um, moments after Newtown, well, we, would talk, we talked about guns and, and not the, the topic that we had scheduled, filibuster reform, and he posted um, uh, a, a short piece that we'll put um, on the show notes um, called The History of the Second Amendment in Two Paintings, summarizing our conversation. And you can see it um, very dramatically. The founding vision is all about um, militias in Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. That's the first painting, um, John Trumbull's Battle of Bunker Hill. And that's what the original Second Amendment vision is all about. And then the bottom painting is actually um, from the 1860s. It's uh, um, from Harper's Weekly, the Freedmen's Bureau, and it's all about blacks needing guns in their homes for self-protection. And the second painting is obviously gesturing toward, alluding to, sampling, riffing on the first one. So the original Second Amendment vision was military, localist, collective, communal, um, political. Um, the uh, reconstructed um, vision of arms bearing is none of the above. It's not really military. It's civilian. It's not really collective. It's individualistic. It's not really public. It's, it's private. Um, um, it's not really state-rights-oriented. It's nationalist. Um, individuals need, are entitled, especially blacks, to have guns in their homes for self-protection because they can't count on the local sheriff to protect them, the local constabulary, and the national government will protect that. We call that incorporation. The national government will say there is a national right, a 14th Amendment right, a privilege and immunity of national citizenship to have, uh, to, to keep and carry, um, or to, at least to have a gun in your home for self-protection. That was at the core, and that right was not only um, nicely captured by a painting, um, in Harper's Weekly, but by the language of the Freedmen's Bureau Act um, of 1866, which was a companion statute to the 14th Amendment itself. Same Reconstruction Congress, same people voting for one is voting for the other. And the third part of that Reconstruction Republican tri triad was the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So there's the Civil Rights Act of 1866, the Freedmen's Bureau Act of 1860, the Freedmen's Bureau Bill of 1866, and the 14th Amendment. And they all tightly interlocked in the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, expressly uses the words, he says that there's a, a, a personal constitutional right to keep and bear arms. And, and, and in that context, they're not talking about the militia. They're not mentioning the militia at all. It's about a right um, to have a gun in your home for self-protection. Now, the New York case isn't going to be about your home. It's going to be about carrying your gun outside the home. And the uh, Heller case um, was about a gun in a home. And city of Chicago versus McDonald was about a gun in the home. And, but this New York case is going to go beyond that. It's going to be not just about keeping, you keep a gun in your home, but 
bearing, caring, taking, taking something outside your home, maybe for self-protection, maybe for, for other purposes, for hunting, for sport, um, for target practice. Um, but it's going to be going beyond the core uh, 14th Amendment um, idea of guns in the homes for self-protection. Now, um, maybe it's not... It's going to be a permissible um, expansion of that idea, but in order to decide whether it's a permissible extension, we're going to think need to think not just about the founding, as we've done at great length in in, um, in what we've talked about before, and, and the Reconstruction. We're going to also have to talk about modern America and how and modern Americans and their ideas about their. Um, unenumerated rights, um, which are sometimes expressed in, in, in state legislation and, and state constitutional provisions, federally unenumerated, but, but um, protected um, elsewhere in the American um, uh, experience. And, you know, you could understand why people would react viscerally to the prospect of a case coming down now that might theoretically expand or limit, let's say, states' abilities to uh, say that you can carry a gun, whether openly or not. Um, and uh, But I think as you'll hear here, this case, this particular case is about the particular permitting scheme that New York adopted. Um, right. And New York, as you're going to hear, is an outlier, um, uh, very much out of sync with most of the other states, as, for example... Um, when we talked about Dobbs, we talked about how in Griswold versus Connecticut, Connecticut was an outlier when it came to um, contraceptive rights. Right. It isn't necessarily an outlier in the idea of wanting to, uh, you know, have to not have, you know, a lot of guns carried around outside the home. Yeah. But it might be an outlier in the way that it administers yeah, the, the particular way they did the thing was was um, pretty extreme. So we'll listen to a little bit about some of those issues here. Up. You know, a lot of the argument in this case has to do with, um, you know, whether the state, the, the question is, is the state's regulation, you know, too overbroad? Um, and are they, uh, they what, what they, they mostly denied permits, what they're saying, to, um, to people to carry, um, unless the people could show that they had a particular need um, for self-defense because of some activity they engaged in or some place that they went, you know, and so forth. So that's, that's some of the, the, argu- the reason that this case uh, came before the court. And Andy, hang on so, just there, just on, on that point. This is really important because I think the Supreme Court is probably going to side with the gun guys, okay? It's really important. This is not saying you can't have a permit regime like we have a licensing for automobiles. It's saying the permit um, regime can't be about whether the government thinks you have a good enough reason for wanting it. Just like they don't ask me why I want to drive a car in general. Um, um, but maybe, but they can make sure they, they, they can, um, uh, uh, cause cars are lethal too. Let me tell you, um, the government does may legitimately say, you got to show, you know how to use this thing. Okay. Um, and you have to pass a, a, a book test and a practical test, and, and, and we can um, require that the license be renewed regularly and you can't abuse it. So, so if we can um, um, have rules about um, guns, even if the gun uh, rules about cars, excuse me, um, even if New York loses this case and the gun groups win it, that doesn't, uh, depending on how they write the opinion, that wouldn't mean you couldn't have a permitting regime. It just means the permitting regime can't, 
and leave it to the whim, the discretion of officialdom, whether you're a good enough person um, to be able to have a gun or not, whether you have a good enough reason. Instead, um, a regime, which I bet, I think many states do have um, certain regimes in which you have to show you know how to use this thing before you can get a proper permit. So Justice Roberts, um, though, I think was was probably in some ways the most extreme on this. So Here's a, a question he, he asked. Here's a quote from, the, which I got off the SCOTUS blog. Um, you know, he sa- first he didn't like the fact that New York wanted applicants to prove that they had a, a need to carry. Yeah, and okay, I can which understand. Which relates to what, to what you were saying. And especially, says, hang on, just especially if you even have an understanding of the 14th Amendment, you might say, hmm, wouldn't be surprised if white people in a certain, you know, uh, state, let's say in a Southern state, if you had that regime in 1870 in Mississippi, white people need guns and black people, says say the officials, you know, the white officials administering this discretionary system. And, and whenever black people seek um, a, a permission, you know, you don't really, you know, need a gun, you know? Um, and, and so I can see uh, an absolutely, um, a system of, of complete um, a bureaucratic discretion and arbitrariness might make him uneasy, even if he's just channeling the 14th Amendment experience. Well, here's what he said. He said, no matter what the right is, that's not a direct quote, but here, here's a direct quote. It would be surprising to have it depend upon a permit system. You can say that the right is limited in a particular way, just as First Amendment rights are limited. But the or First Amendment right are limited. It's probably a typo. But the idea you need a license to exercise the right, I think, is unusual in the context of the Bill of Rights. Yeah, so I like the idea he's thinking panoramically, saying, well, is that how we do it for other rights? But of course, it's not the case that every single reason that you have for one right um, applies to another right. And the, the, the scope of of every right kind of has to be the same in all respects or even in this one. So here's what's easy and obvious, Chief Justice Roberts, with all due respect, that um, uh, when you are in prison, you do not get to, as let's say, because you've been convicted of a felony, we don't let you take your gun in the cell with you. Okay, and, and and the NRA believes that, and you believe that, and every sane person believes that. And even after you're out of prison as an ex-felon, actually, it's possible that you will uh, will have lost your gun rights if you, especially if you're committed of a, a violent felony with a weapon, armed robbery, for example. It'd be perfectly um, sensible to say once you've been convicted of armed robbery, we're going to put you in prison for ten years, and you don't get get to carry your take your gun in with you. And even after ten years, you've lost your gun rights. But no one would say, if you're convicted of armed robbery, that you don't have, um, um, uh, you're not allowed to actually write a newspaper op-ed um, when you're in prison, right? A letter from a Birmingham jail to, to just to, to, to invoke a very famous um, episode of First Amendment activity in jail. That's Martin Luther King. Gandhi, you know, wrote very famous things from prison. And surely after you're out of prison, of course, you have all sorts of First Amendment rights. So, um, and, and what, why? What's the difference? Because quite obviously, you know, sticks and stones and guns can break my bones and kill me and words can't. And so there are reasons why we treat the First Amendment differently from the second. We would have Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, with due respect, huge um, protection of freedom of speech in the press, 
even if we didn't have a First Amendment, because it's central to how we govern ourselves as a society. Um, and I'm not sure that guns in the home for self-protection or guns for sport or guns for hunting or recreation, just gun-toting more generally, is um, central to self-government and free elections the way uh, political discourse and, 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 and robust rights of political expression are, of course, central to um, um, democracy itself. You can have a democracy that limits gun-toting. There are many great democracies around the world that limit gun-toting a lot more than d- does America. But all the great democracies around the world um, today have um, robust protections of political expression. America has even more than most, but they all have robust protection. Um, and many of them have much less um, a gun-toting. Britain is not a gun-toting regime nearly to the extent that, that we are in America. Australia used to be pretty gun-toting, but I think recently they, they dramatically uh, changed their, their practices. So he's asking a great question. You know, which is why would you have a different rule for this amendment than that one? And I hope I've given him a satisfactory answer. Okay, so some of the issues in in Bruin, um, and, and I'm doing a certain kind of damage control in advance, as I tried to do with Dobbs, saying, "Well, okay, e- even if uh, Roe is overturned, um, here are all the things that still survive." Um, just uh, Chief Justice Roberts was saying, oh, we don't have licensing uh, for the press, so we shouldn't have licensing for guns. I'm thinking, oh, no, that's not what this case is all about. This is about licensing with no rules, because, of course, you should be able to have licensing of guns, just like you have licensing of cars, you know, and licensing of car drivers. Um, so, and, and if you said you can't have licenses at all or permit regimes, oh, wow, that would be very inconsistent with laws on the books in, 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 in many states and laws that Congress is actually thinking about right now, loophole-free background checks, which are about permits and, and licensing. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about with uh, Adam Winkler next week. So I jumped in, you know, I hope very politely, I have great respect um, for, the, for the Chief Justice, I really do, but I just didn't want either of two ideas to really get out there um, and, and start to catch fire. One, permits and licensing are generally bad, and that's what this case is, um, this New York case is all about. No, it's about certain um, licensing with no standards, with utter arbitrariness and discretion and whim, kind of um, lawlessness. That's actually, um, I think, what the case on its facts is really uh, going to be, a, uh, is about. And second, I wanted to nip in the bud this idea that even though I'm holistic, I want to say, well, how do you think about this right? How does it compare with how we think about that right? And we want to be methodologically consistent, all the rest. It does not ever follow that because right A is interpreted in this way that we always have to interpret right B the same way when rights A and B have very, very different um, purposes and structures and, 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 and logics. And, and, and no one who is sane you know, even the, the, the denies this. The NRA does not deny this because they do not believe you have a right to have a gun as a convicted felon in prison. And yet everyone thinks that you have a right to have a pencil and paper and, and to write a letter from, from the jailhouse. So you have First Amendment rights much more robustly in prison than Second Amendment rights. And no one sane thinks otherwise. And so this gets into the you know differences among rights, but also the fact that there are multiple rights, and and we then talked a little bit about the fact that these rights can come into conflict, and then you have to weigh them, 
you know, and uh, and so forth. And I asked a question about that, and then we talked a little bit about this idea of uh, positive and negative rights. So the question is that, you know, what is a, what is a an individual's right to not be at risk from other people carrying guns? How does that get weighed against the right of an individual to carry a gun? And I think that this is so. This is so two things, if I may. First of all, I think this is becoming a lot more important because I read an article the other day about the rise in these self-defense laws and changes in definitions of self-defense. That you, what does it mean to be the aggressor, you know, and so forth. And we're seeing this with the Kyle Rittenhouse case, yes. um, as well as other cases. So that arguably th- these changes in the law and the Zimmerman case in, in Florida, the, these cases are raising the danger to those of us who are not armed um, because the legal protection against the misuse of guns um, by those who would carry them in these in these uh, areas um, are, are, are lowering. Now, the 14th Amendment says, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So I, I was getting ready to argue that one of my privileges or immunities is to be safe mm-hmm. okay from getting shot mm-hmm. okay and so but this is kind of an absolute prohibition no state shall make or enforce which shall abridge so not even eliminate but abridge a, prim, a privilege or immunity so how does this work when you have to weigh two privileges or immunities yeah. um if if they are mutually incompatible and, 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 and you and, can't abridge yeah. either one and, and what do you do yeah well and note that um um uh, there's a nice question about whether the state is abridging uh, anything uh, when uh, 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 some uh, private person, Billy the Kid, shoots you up. In general, our tradition has distinguished between so-called negative rights and, and positive or affirmative rights. And most of the rights that states can't abridge are um, um, uh, rights um that are negative rights, rights against state intervention. They're not rights to something. I, um, uh, I have a right to education, to welfare, to um, unemployment benefits. Sometimes there are folks who have advocated for, for a positive rights. I'm, I'm one of them. Um, but in general, the Supreme Court has been very hesitant to constitutionalize positive rights, a, a right to be free from um, someone else's private violence. Um, the, um, so when the state actually doesn't sufficiently protect um, law-abiding citizens from gun toters and gun toters shoot, um, uh, threaten the rest of us with guns, a court might say, "Well, even if you have some right to of of of, of, of to be safe and 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 um, have peace of mind." The state hasn't really violated that right. It's the gun toter. Well, you might apply that same argument to vaccines, right? In other words, that I have a right to to walk in a public environment where I'm not being where the state needs to maintain the public health and is not, you know, ma- allowing people to you know be unvaccinated and spread their germs. You know, to so me, from, from one kind of shot to another kind of shot. Um, but note, almost no one has argued that vaccine 
mandates are required under that theory, only that they're permissible. And so even the vaccines, again, you see the power of this negative rights uh, conception that's, that is a, a very powerful framework in the American constitutional tradition. Of course, there's also right to counsel, but that's in the, you know, it's a little bit in the law of law area, I guess. Okay. Um, the government is initiating, it's going after you in a courtroom, and once it's done that, you know, it, it's acting in a certain way, and, and so maybe it has to make sure that it's a fair um, courtroom procedure, or it can just drop the case, and if it drops the case, then um, um, you don't have a lawyer because there's no case against you. Our um, groupies will appreciate that, I, c- I could be wrong, but at least I'm consistent. What I said about kind of uh, powers and rights and basically just negative rights against the government in response to your question is very similar to what I said about um, something that David Cole um, wrote and that I, um, in the Washington Post and that I critiqued a few episodes ago um, in our post-Dobbs conversations. About the, about the court taking away rights and had never taken away rights. Um, yeah. About how the New Deal was really about giving people rights mm-hmm. against corporations or something. Right. I said, no, I not really. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then we kind of finished up our discussion on Bruin, and then uh, then we're ready to conclude. So here's uh, some final comments here on Bruin, first of all. But the second issue, again, and, we not, and, and I know we're coming to the, to the close of our time, um, is a kind of accounting question. Um, there's a cultural division between states here, and, um, and if you lived in, you know, the, the free and easy state of Wyoming or or Texas, you might be a little more comfortable with people toting guns all the time because they they actually um, um, uh, have a more gun-toting culture. And it makes you nervous because actually you live in a state that doesn't do that. The court is saying, ah, this is turnabout being fair play. For the longest time, a conservative court, for the longest time, Yankee state values were being imposed on the Southland. Um, that's what the Warren Court did. Um, and now, actually, you know, this is the revenge of the South and the Midwest. A common trope in Second Amendment discourse has been the Second Amendment shouldn't be a second-class right. Um, and, and, and that's where you're, you're seeing things like, gee, we don't have a permit regime for the First Amendment. Why should we have a permit regime for the Second Amendment? I'm in favor of a permit regime. Um, uh, on the model of driver's license permits. I don't want it to be completely discretionary because I, I see the problem there. But um, this um, and this trope, well, we don't have a permit regime for the press, so how can we have a permit regime for arms bearing? Because there's special rules and a special history about press licensing and freedoms from prior restraint. Every rule that makes sense for freedom of speech in the press does not automatically carry over into arms bearing. And remember the Warren Court, it incorporated lots of other provisions of the Bill of Rights, but not the Second Amendment. So so um, there is this pent up thought that, gee, um, um, certain rights are second class rights and believers in that are second class citizens. And, and you're seeing some of these, you know, memes and tropes uh, surfacing. It is sort of relevant. If we're going to count states, I'm not sure how many states actually have any sort of formal um, law that says there is a right to be secure from private gun violence or something. Um, uh, uh, So you're absolutely right. There are competing, clashing uh, cultural visions. 
it is an occasion, therefore, for the court to go carefully here on the facts of this case. New York has adopted a discretionary regime that goes much, much further than most states have done in trying to protect the rights of of the rest of us to be just safe from private gun violence. So I think we came out of this, and of course this was at a time when we weren't right in the aftermath of a horrific uh, shooting, murder of children, unthinkable, um, but but real. Um, and the specter of, of greater encouragement, if you will, of... Uh, of arms bearing outside the home uh, that the government would be powerless to regulate was, you know, frightening many, is frightening many people now. So perhaps this argument, although it appears that the, uh, that you're predicting that the the court will probably rule against New York, um, nevertheless, it may not actually carry that specter as much as, as it might. And in the aftermath of this, um, you know, we can't help but think back to the uh, terrible episode in Newtown, Sandy Hook. Um, and uh, after that that happened, there was a push to try to get Congress to, uh, to act. Because after all, as we just talked about, in, in the realm of positive rights, maybe we can't expect much from the court in terms of doing things that will affirmatively make us safer. That's the role of the legislature, the court uh, might, might say. Um, and so our eyes turned to the legislature, as it did after Newtown. And uh, we actually discussed this briefly, so um, I'm going to play that uh, as, it, as it referred to, uh, to your role. I promised our audience to just briefly tell a story about what happened in the wake of Newtown. So I believe that there is a right to have a gun in the home for self-protection. I have not really written about um, uh, home, a gun use outside the home very much. In the wake of Newtown, I did have this conversation with Ezra Klein. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, I was invited to brief the House Democratic Caucus um, about sensible gun control. And actually, uh, um, it was close to the press, so I wasn't able to talk about it for the longest time, but, but now enough time has passed and, um, and um, so the statute of limitations on that cone of silence has, has basically lapsed. The vice president of the United States at the time was Joe Biden. He got up and, and, and talked. Then I actually gave uh, the, the same audience a, a kind of um, briefing about um, a ser- what serious gun regulation would look like and, and how it would pass constitutional muster. And then actually uh, the president of the United States, Barack Obama, gave up and uh, came up and, and, and gave a talk. It was you know, really an extraordinary event to be part of. Here's one thing that I did say. I say, if you're going to regulate guns, you really actually need to be expert on it. You need, to, so you need to talk to gun owners. You need to actually show that you respect them and, and um and their values and, and vision. For some people, it's not really just about the gun. It's about their culture. It's about how they were, uh, were brought up. It's about their, you know, their father with whom they used to go hunting. The father has passed away. It's, it's very deep and identitarian and visceral. And if you're trying to regulate guns and you don't even know what a gun looks like, you're going to actually probably say things in the law that... Um, are going to cause you problems in court. For example, a lot of gun 
law, uh, a major federal gun law, actually just tried to regulate cosmetic things like um, whether it had a, a whether the gun looked nasty, whether it had um, a bayonet on it, um, uh, which really doesn't contribute very much to lethality. Um, whether it had a, a wooden stock or a plastic stock, um, whether um, uh, some of these laws actually, because they couldn't specify the actual hardware that was more lethal, um, simply identified certain um, uh, um, gun brands by name. That's going to be a real problem at the Supreme Court because they're going to see that as just reflecting kind of woke um, cultural hostility to guns and gun owners rather than sensible, you know, careful policy wonk analysis of um, the, the actual um, uh, uh, lethality and dangerousness of, of the weapon at issue. Um, one thing that we haven't talked about, but maybe when the decision comes down, um, we will have another episode on this, is Oh, all the different kinds of weapons. Uh, might you distinguish between tasers, for example, um, and um, and um, uh, other sorts of, of, of guns? What, what actually counts as arms, you know? And, and, and might we regulate some um, uh, uh, more strictly than others because some are, uh, pose a lot more of a threat to innocent passersby, which is your concern? Okay, well, it could just as easily have been said, you know, now. Um, but this is really a perfect, uh, a perfect segue to our to our next episode, wouldn't you say? Absolutely, we're going to talk specifically about um, what gun legislation uh, could look like and should look like that could actually maybe actually get um, a broad coalition of a broad enough coalition of Congress to support it and would pass constitutional muster. We will have the leading expert on this, Adam Winkler. And, and what you heard me say at the end is, you know, the basic idea is not woke, but wonk. Um, we actually need to know what we're doing here. And uh, in preparation, perhaps, uh, you know, if, if our audience can't wait, you can take a look at an article by uh, Nicholas Kristof uh, in the New York Times last week, which uh, uh, attempted to take this approach as well and did so uh, with some skill. Very thoughtful. Okay, so so this week we've given you a look back uh, that that is still current in many ways at the framework of rights and how we look at the Second Amendment and and the Fourteenth Amendment and gun rights in general within that framework. We've looked at the uh, arguments in the Bruin case and its implications, uh, good and bad. Uh, if if you're a advocate of uh, of doing something about the the status of the gun laws um and uh and now we're going to look at what might be done so that's and then eventually when the case comes down we'll review the decision and if congress passes a law we'll review that so that's our agenda and thank you very much akil see you next week <laughs>